0: Connect with friends and loved ones behind prison walls through the power of community radio. Calls from Home is a new program at CFRC that allows families, friends, and supporters to communicate messages of love and support to those incarcerated in Kingston prisons. Call our toll-free hotline to leave a free message and song request. All messages and music will be broadcast on air on the last Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. as part of CFRC's prison radio show, CPR. You can call the toll-free number at any time, 24-7, from anywhere in Canada. Call 1-800-440-5219. That's 1-800-440-5219.
1: Keep your heads up and look forward brighter days, y'all.
2: You are listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM, Queen's University's International Affairs radio show.
1: Tonight, I
0: can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda.
1: You are listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. Broadcasting from Queen's University campus, Right of Reply is produced by members of the Queen's International Affairs Association. By featuring unique personal experiences, perspectives, and dialogue, we aim to make international issues and events more accessible and engaging for members of the Queen's and Kingston communities.
2: Today's show features an interview with Queen's history professor Emily Hill. The interview focuses on the current Chinese political system and recent leadership change in the top echelon of the Communist Party. We also discuss some historical foundations of the strength of the Communist Party state in China. We'll provide a little bit of context before airing the interview. Just last week, Chinese President Hu Jintao stepped down after a decade of holding the positions of Chairman of the Central Military Commission and General Secretary of the Communist Party of China. While Jintao remains president, he is expected to step down from that post in March of this coming year. Such a leadership change does not come often in China, and is years in the making. As Professor Hill points out, Hu Jintao was former paramount leader and reformer Deng Xiaoping's chosen successor. Likewise, the new members of the Politburo Standing Committee, the most powerful group in the Communist Party, rose to prominence through their extensive connections with party leadership and support of the party line. They are where they are now, says Professor Hill, because they have been in close agreement with the policies of the past 10 years. Therefore, it is not likely that much will change under the new Chinese leadership. We also talked to Professor Hill about environmental policy in China, the prospect of improving the situations of minorities like Uyghur Muslims, as well as the current controversy over disputed islands in the South and East China Seas. You will also hear about economic policy and growth, as well as discussion about the democracy wall, Democracy Wall was a long brick wall close to the party headquarters in Beijing. It became the focus of democratic dissent beginning in late 1978 under Deng Xiaoping. We talked to Professor Hill about new forms of democratic dissent, namely the Chinese form of Twitter. You'll learn more from Professor Hill in the following interview. Throughout the 1990s, communism fell in Eastern Europe, Latin America was democratizing, And now uh, with the Arab Spring, a number, although still a minority, of Middle Eastern countries uh, are in turmoil and potentially on on the road to democracy. So why has China remained so authoritarian?
3: Right, China is very different from the uh, uh, countries affected by the Arab Spring movement, uh, largely because the leadership has established a system of regular succession, rather than one dicta- dictator staying in power for decades and and uh, um, not being very popular as in uh, more than one Middle Eastern country. China has a set, you could call it an oligarchy, I think you, you have used that word, uh, an oligarchy but an oligarchy that that can stay beyond certain term uh, limits. So the top members of the, uh, the government, uh, the party state, uh, the seven in the Standing Committee of the Politburo, uh, or nine, uh, there are now nine, uh, are limited to two successive five-year terms.
2: Do you think that there's something to be said for this culture argument that the Confucian tradition and democracy are not compatible? But that could just be that it's, you know, Western democracy that's not compatible with. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting um, question to to discuss and think about, but I don't think it's necessary for understanding why China remains authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, China has um, uh, been developing economically very rapidly, as you know, Mm -hmm. but a political economy approach is sufficient, in my Mm -hmm. view, for explaining China's apparently slow progress in uh, uh, political reform. Compared to the rapid economic change that's been taking place in the past few decades, mm-hmm. so uh, culture is always very interesting to think about. The argument that Chinese culture is not compatible with Western democracy has some truth in it, and um, uh, of course it depends a lot on how you define Chinese culture and how you're defining Western democracy. <laughs> but it, but it can, it, the argument can be made based on uh, more precise uh, explanations of what what's meant by those to to uh, sets of <laughs> sets of phenomena, history and ideas, the, the culture and the 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 political systems, whether they, think they're compatible the, or
0: not. I think by the culture, like when we're kind of comparing the two, we're kind of talking about um, there's a mindset that in China it's more of a collective mindset that mm-hmm. we do to pursue the. The greater good, kind of to serve mm-hmm. for the greater people.
3: Well, China is a uh, part of a more um, general East Asian cultural area, and in East Asia, there are other countries that uh, you could say are part of a regional culture that emphasizes emphasizes co- collective identity, including Japan, Taiwan, both Koreas, Korea as a whole. And the, the people in all those countries believe that they are less individualistic than Westerners. Nonetheless, all except for the Democratic, <laughs> the Democratic People's Republic of Korea uh, have um, elections for parliaments and presidents. They have come much farther along a path. I don't believe there's a universal path, but, but they have democratized much more than China has, despite some cultural traits that might be different from what have developed in the the uh, Western countries that have had parliamentary democracies for centuries already.
2: Just before we go into this, the next question, so do you think authoritarianism has persisted because the CCP has been able to create such a strong system?
3: Well, um, it has... Because the state uh, and, well...
2: and, and the regime are, are synonymous, almost, you know? Yes.
3: Uh-huh. The... Um, uh, the... They're so closely linked, in fact, that the term "party-state" makes sense in referring, referring to China. Well, China has what you, what's been described as an authoritarian government uh, because of recent history and more decent dis- <laughs> more uh, the more distant past. China has a long history of centralized government. Right. It has uh, ever since uh, the. Uh, Issue was first debated. Chosen to have a unitary state structure, than, rather than a federal state structure, and uh, in recent years has delivered economic prosperity to the population, which has, which has given legitimacy to the existing <laughs> pre-established unitary centralized state structure. It's also been very bureaucratic uh, government for many centuries. Of course, there were interruptions in in the in the flow of history so it hasn't always been one government but but people feel that it has been one chinese state that there is a a chinese state that even when it um, isn't unified exists as the ideal
0: situation for the chinese people chinese leadership has trended towards a more collective kind of government in recent years the position of paramount leader currently held by hu jintao is not afforded the same authority it was in Mao or Deng Xiaoping's years. Do you see this as a step away from the dictatorship that China has seen in the past, or is China leadership just an unaccountable oligarchy?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, interesting. Well, the term paramount leader was never a formal title. It comes from uh, a description used by Western journalists to describe Deng Xiaoping because he decided not to take on um, the title that Mao had held in fact the party decided no one no one would ever be uh, chairman of China again, and he wanted to emphasize that it was a collective leadership that he was part of a collective leadership so because people knew that he was the most powerful uh, in the collective set, they wanted to identify him as China's top leader and and then use the phrase "paramount leader so um, Hu Tao does have a more exalted title than Deng Xiaoping, but he it, it hasn't even been called paramount leader by Western journalists anymore. The, well, maybe a few, but I haven't noticed that. Uh, it's fallen into disuse since Deng's death in 1997. Okay. But the, the sub, substance question is, um, is this uh, small dictatorship that does with it what it wants in an arbitrary manner, or is it accountable to the people? There, it's a very complex question. It's um, Not a transparent government. So uh, we don't know. Even the most um, uh, uh, well-known specialists on Chinese politics don't know for sure. The only only people who know for sure how much they're taking into account public sentiment or the public's wishes are those seven or nine people in the center. And really, the the Constitution doesn't make them accountable. it's more that people are responsible to to obey the government than the government being responsible to represent the people. It, that, I would say, is, the, is a basic fact about the Chinese government. But they do take um, public sentiment into account because China has a huge population and it's very important to control the population. They use the word social management, the term social management, and in the past year and a half have been discussing... Uh, how to strengthen social management, which really means controlling the population. Mm-hmm. Because if people um, uh, assemble and protest in crowds, if they're pro- even if they're protesting about a local issue, or even if they're protesting because Japan has made a statement about owning islands in the East China Sea, for instance, that is a protest that could too easily turn against the government and get out of hand and maybe spread to other regions, etc. So. Uh, public sentiment is very carefully monitored
0: mm-hmm. by,
2: by the state.
3: Do the you feel state.
0: that in recent years, like as the government progresses, that there is more of a care for public sentiment, or more like the government is more listening to its public and kind of appeasing their public a little more than they used to? Like, do you feel like there is this? No, I don't. No, I, I
3: don't, don't see that at all.
2: Do you think that there's going to be anything like, like the democracy wall
3: no, because of technological change. Right now, there's democracy Weibo, uh, Chinese form, uh, forms of uh, tweeting. Right, mm-hmm. and in a typical Chinese tweet, <laughs> Twitter itself isn't isn't used, but uh, Weibo is a, a similar a similar system. In a t- typical Chinese tweet, you can say more because you're writing in characters and
0: mm-hmm. you don't need
3: as much space. And there are hundreds of millions of people following following this label every day that that is much more powerful than democracy wall actually it reaches much further
2: actually I'm sorry I should have uh, I should have asked you earlier but just for our our listeners could you explain what democracy wall was
3: Uh, soon after Deng Xiaoping came to power people felt um, uh, very optimistic about how there might be political change and uh, uh, it was a popular movement of of posting criticisms of the political system and um commentary on uh, injustices that people had suffered. And uh, people posted these notices, uh, sometimes very detailed, <laughs> long letters to the public, open letters, sometimes just a few words, on a particular wall near the central government's offices. And it became a very popular gathering place, because th- this was so much interesting information. People hadn't had um, the chance to read such wide, uh, a wide range of uh, views for years. And uh, they could participate. Uh, so it it went on for months and months, um, about five months, until Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues. It seems we don't quite know um, what uh, they 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 thought or said to one another. But they decided to shut it down and arrested someone that they claimed was a main leader of the whole thing and uh, charged him with. Um, uh, damaging state security, purposefully, (laughs) and imprisoned him for 15 years. This is Wei Jingshan, Mm -hmm. who has uh, been uh, out of prison now uh, and been um, imprisoned again. He was imprisoned twice, actually, but he's been out now and is a well-known dissident uh, Mm -hmm. still.
2: But it was the Chinese government that actually said, okay, let's Mm -hmm. release a little bit of our frustration. Do you think that that will happen again, or was, was Democracy Wall kind of just like a, a warning, basically interpreted as a warning now that, you know, the government has to monitor but not let public opinion get out of hand?
3: Uh, yes, well, Democracy Wall was useful for assessing what people sentiment was. And there are agencies, um, staffs, re, uh, uh, working for the government to monitor public opinion through the, mm-hmm. the media in use now. And they have, a, they have a similar interests. They, they're keeping an eye on what people are concerned about. Mm-hmm. So.
2: so, due to term and age limit mm-hmm. restrictions, seven of nine members of the Politburo Standing Committee will be retiring, including mm-hmm. Hu Jintao, uh, who's currently the president and party's general secretary. Do you think there will be a change in direction of Chinese governments towards a more kind mm-hmm. of economically open or even politically open system with the new leadership, or, or will it be business as usual? As a member of the WTO, China uh, has opened enormously,
3: and it's hard to see how it could be more open to world trade than it is now. It doesn't have particularly high tariffs on some things that perhaps could be um, uh, could be protected better. Uh, tariffs on uh, agricultural production, for instance, are, are less protective than they are in Japan, have been for a long time, uh, but. Looking at ownership structure, perhaps that's Mm what you're interested in. Since the um, recession began and China began a fiscal stimulus policy, uh, the state's share of ownership of industry has increased. Mm -hmm. I don't see signs of it being reduced again. Mm -hmm. I don't see signs of more um, uh, improved conditions for smaller enterprises uh, or purely private enterprise there's there's there are a lot of enterprises in China that are are um, connected to the state but are partly private <laughs> as well uh, but the, the state is, the, the 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 state now dominates the economy and more than it did 10 years ago mm-hmm. so I think it will continue to oh, have a strong state a stake <laughs> in, in uh, the economy
2: Politically, do you think there's uh, any potential?
3: As a a historian, I'm um, (laughs) reluctant to talk about the future, because that depends on current understanding current trends. Predictions of the future are very much based on on careful watching of current trends the last couple of years. Uh, I do pay some attention. Uh, So my prediction is really no because I'm expecting economic slowdown.
0: And there has been signs of economic slowdown as of now, so. Yes, yeah.
3: I know. I'm expecting continued economic slowdown, and economic mm-hmm. slowdown mm-hmm. to the point that the general population in China is aware of it, which they're not yet, because of the fiscal stimulus program. Every, you know, everywhere uh, there's massive construction projects going on, so the the economy has continued to grow, people are to, can, um, are still employed, continue to find jobs. But if it becomes more obvious that growth is slowing, people won't find jobs, prices are rising, I don't expect that to create momentum for political change in the direction of democratization, I would expect it to have the opposite effect, to, to create more clamping down on possible discontent. In the longer term, it could shake things up and, and lead the party state to be more publicly accountable because of the, largely because of the resentment people feel if they're not benefiting from uh, growth rates that are causing all boats to rise, uh, if they stop benefiting but the, the top-level leaders are still so wealthy because now it's clear that they have benefited mm-hmm. uh, personally from their, their positions. That's just in the last couple of years that's become more clear, so that contradiction between their personal gain out of being in the government and the general population suffering uh, squeeze could, could shake things up, but it's hard, very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. And it would, it, it would depend as well on s- external conditions to some extent. China is, um, is, is developing now on an export-led growth model that, it's, that, that is not going to work as well as it had, has in the past. So it might not follow the, say, a, a trajectory similar to South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, because the markets are not as, as <laughs> um, open as, to, to export goods as they were before. So, so that's an example of, of something in the external world that's different. But I wouldn't, and I wouldn't look to external circumstances for uh, an impetus to change. I think what happens in China will largely be generated by domestic politics.
2: And do you think then that, though, if uh, you said that clamped down because of economic kind of slowing a little mm-hmm. bit, is that because the government is wary that people are probably going to be more discontented if, if economically things slow down?
1: And yeah. there's potential
2: mm-hmm. for protests?
3: Yes, I think the leaders are very aware of that. Right. The, the budget for um, domestic security, the um, Public Security Bureau, the military, armed police, and um, there's this a set of them, different agencies uh, in one sector that we could call <laughs> domestic security forces. It has a larger budget now than National Defense, than the People's Liberation Army does. It shows... Uh, the, the government is more concerned about uh, domestic stability than being attacked by mm-hmm. <laughs> by a foreign enemy.
2: Um, okay, so I just have a question about minorities in mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, as you said, as a historian it's kind of hard to predict the future, but mm-hmm. do you think, where do you think, um, for example, the Tibet question and Uyghur Muslims, mm-hmm. where will they stand under this new government will there be any change do
3: you think or i don't think things are going to get better for them in the next decade right no
2: um
3: there is not enough support in the general population the the total minority population is about five percent of the whole population of china it's risky to it would be risky for any of the top leaders to to liberalize at all regarding the the policies, the hard-line, heavy-handed policies toward the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and other groups, right. Mongols and another group. Because it doesn't no. have
2: popular support?
3: No, oh. popular support doesn't really matter uh, because of the risk of separatism. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have their associates' support. Right. Those people are where they are now because they have uh, been in close agreement with, with the policies that have existed for the past 10 years and, and earlier because they've been rising for 25, 30 years off those top seven or nine <laughs> Do
0: you also feel that popular support from the Western world also doesn't matter too much just because China is such a big player within the global world that because they have so much say in everything, there really isn't that much gain in Western countries or like the Western world supporting this cause of minorities of Tibet, of the Muslims?
3: Uh, yeah, I agree with that, because because China is big enough to ignore what any critics mm-hmm. outside China say. And it uses any criticisms to its advantage. The, the, this, the party state's propaganda machine will say these outsiders who don't know what's going on are criticizing us. They want to bash China. They, their real agenda is bashing China because
2: we're a rising power and they want to keep us down.
3: And the general population will,
2: will believe that. In terms of the actual transition of leadership. Will Wen Jaibao and Hu Jintao step completely out of the political arena uh, or will they still have a have a role to play? Uh,
3: some recent news is that Hu Jintao has um, has uh, announced that he's giving up all his posts,
2: including the military
3: yes, which Jiang kept for a couple of years uh, after um, stepping down as president and uh, party secretary but who has strong connections with the incoming group, so although he will not have formal authority, he will have the <laughs> guanxi connections that count for a lot. So the, the, the people coming in now have risen by having good connections. Uh, they don't lose their good connections. And he has helped this new group come in and they will, they will be close to him through this, the, these, these ties of mutual help <laughs> and obligation. So, so not all, because um, some some have other patrons, Mm -hmm. but uh, not all will. You know, some will put it this way: some will be more uh, feel more obligated to him than others. uh, But all, to some extent, will feel obligated to him. So that will give him the the informal status of party elder, and he'll be
2: receptive to, to that kind of participation. Do you think? I don't know.
3: Maybe he would prefer to retire and do calligraphy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say what these people's individual personalities are like. Yeah. As you say, the 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 leaders since Jiang um, Zemin have been less colorful, especially. For sure, since Deng Xiaoping. For sure, since Mao, they they've become grayer and grayer over the decades. So it's hard to know what what he would prefer. Yeah. How would he would prefer to spend his time? Mm-hmm. But these are these these people are are political animals. They've spent their whole careers cultivating their connections. So probably just on that basis, no, not on, on
4: knowing whose
3: personality I would, yeah. expect him to still have influence. Yeah.
0: Um, given ongoing human rights violations, including excessive use of violence by security force, unlawful detention, arbitrary use of state security laws against political descendants, coercive family planning policies, control of information and religious and ethnic persecution. How do you foresee uh, the new Chinese leadership will improve its human rights record, if at all?
3: Well, just looking at recent trends, I don't see improvement happening. So, where would it come from? Would be the question to ask. As I said, popular pressure only counts for so much uh, in in the um, decision making of the. Top leaders. No, sorry, I'm not optimistic. Mm -hmm. I'm not expecting it to get worse. Eventually, I just don't know how long it will take. Uh, The Chinese government will not be as repressive anymore.
2: (laughs) I hope it doesn't take too long. (laughs) And actually you said that domestic security is a priority right now, so we might actually see some increased human rights abuses before we see fewer. Unfortunately,
3: yes. Could get worse, but not all of these things are are on the same trajectory. The f- family pa- planning policy, for instance, is gradually being revised. Right. If you count it as a human rights abuse, it's less abusive now.
0: And also on the same kind of topic of how we we talked about the minorities and like Western powers, do you see that um, because there is Western pressure kind of up, upon human rights as well? Do you see that it is at all useful, like this kind of Western pressure in reforming human rights at all?
3: Unfortunately, no. It doesn't seem to have a positive effect because, again, the the Chinese propaganda machine leads people to believe that, that the real agenda of any critics is to keep China down.
0: But how about like journalists that come from within China that kind of have really made a name for themselves that have been kind of imprisoned for the fact that they've tried to be pro-democracy or be try to gain human rights for?
3: They have very little influence because they don't have a platform. There, There isn't enough free speech for people to know what they're saying. So they don't m- make a dent on policy direction. I Though there is um, a trend of Transnationalization. There are people who are living in China and living in Western Western countries at the same time, traveling back and mm. forth. They're a small part of the population, but they're yeah, okay. they're an elite group and are contributing to a gradual shift in people's expectations of what a government should be like. Um, so this this. This is relevant to a lot of the questions you've asked?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, are most people aware of the extent of human rights violations?
3: No, you have to be outside China to right. to 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 see all it's such to a the news, all, uh, to to see the news mm-hmm. of all these abuses. Right. In China, you would have some awareness uh, because of the the microblogging, uh, other other ways of, s- of spreading information. But that's the most powerful now word of mouth, of course, but you, you don't know that the cases you've heard about are more than isolated um, evils.
0: <laughs> as China grows as an economic and military power, how can the United States and China manage their relationship in such a way as to avoid the conflict that the countries themselves have faced in the past?
3: There really isn't a historical precedent for two very important large economies in the world. Uh, working out tensions between them at the same time as being so important to one another economically. This is the globalized age. Things weren't like this before when one power was rising, another one was established. So it's a new path to be, <laughs> or a new, a new road to uh, to uh, create into the future. Though I would say it, it's a dangerous one because Both publics are hostile. The the American public is hostile to China. The Chinese public is hostile to the US. There's probably more progress to be made on the Chinese side, though, for two reasons. One is the lack of information. The the, uh, knowledge base of the Chinese population could be improved pretty well with a few measures to open up (laughs) uh, the, the, the media. Uh, so that people would understand better, and the other one is that Chinese people think much more about what the U.S. thinks of China than Americans think about China. I mean, for for Americans, China is 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 not a big, really a big deal, even though the the hostile statements sometimes and concern about China taking away jobs. It, it's it's doesn't loom as a huge thing like it does to Chinese people who who are you know concerned about how Americans think about them.
0: But do you feel that um, the United States or the people of the United States are being, are underestimating kind of the power the Chinese have to kind of be a competition? As you said, they're kind of like, they don't think much of like what China thinks of them or like, in that way, do you think that they're underestimating what China can really do in the next decade or in future years? Yes, probably, but
3: everyone in the world is is poorly prepared for the future i think because things are changing more rapidly mm-hmm. challenges are becoming greater so americans aren't really backward compared to that and um the the idea that china is already a huge world power is rather exaggerated china is not yet you're you're, you're talking about it, it c- continuing on, on this path and that's right it, it's not yet where um, uh it's, it's not yet where it would, would be if, it, if uh, its average per capita income were the average in the world. It's still below that. It, its uh, military might is still small. But it's a you know, regional power now. It's not a global power like the U.S. It's mm-hmm. uh, number two economy in the world, but still far below the U.S. in, in total size. Mm, I don't really think Americans are underestimating China's potential. I think Chinese are overestimating where they are, already are, but, and that's, but some so Americans are too. They, you know, it, the, the fear-mongering types are saying, wow, China's military budget is increasing enormously, but it's still so small.
2: This is kind of a, a different question. Mm. Um, speaking of economic growth, mm-hmm. how will the new leadership manage the environmental concerns that accompany mm-hmm. this kind of development? Do you think there'll be a change? Because right now, I remember you said in class, mm-hmm. actually, there's more. There isn't really a proactive stance. It's kind of preparing for future mm-hmm. environmental damage rather than preventing it.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, I do expect China to become more proactive. Yes, mm-hmm. um, it makes sense from a business perspective, and businesses that are in a position to to um, develop. Uh, wind power is a good example, right. and solar power is another excellent example. Have have been um, uh, very active in in uh, developing new technology, borrowing technology first, but uh, then uh, improving it and uh, producing uh, equipment. So, um, China's position on uh, global climate change is that China has contributed so little of the, the carbon load that it should um, have the right to contribute relatively more mm-hmm. compared to the countries that have <laughs> been polluting for generations already. So its its um, its position in international um, negotiations is that it should have the right to, to keep on um, emitting greenhouse
2: gas uh, to develop until uh, it can get to a state where it
3: well looks it's at other um, options, um, reducing carbon intensity. Intensity, reducing the carbon load per unit of energy uh, um, produced, so it's committed to that, and that's that's a step forward. Mm-hmm. But uh, hasn't accepted uh, um, a, ma- a maximum emissions level, uh, and if the U.S. had, then then it'd be perhaps a different story. US, I think we really should look right. to the U.S. Right. as the as the um, major player in these negotiations, that, that, uh, rather than expecting China to take the lead, unfortunately. Yeah,
2: mm. is that kind of because you know Britain and, and and the United States went through their industrial revolution far before China did, exactly. and had the chance mm. to start out without knowledge even of climate change, you know, for like 50 years or 60 years or 70 years. Yes, right.
3: So you suggested another argument that could be made that that now we know about the damage we're doing and uh, how we're going to destroy this, this biosphere if we keep going. So China's position could be different on <laughs> the basis of that Now we know, whereas in Britain in 1800, no one knew that you know, burning coal was, was going to cause a problem later on. But yes, China's position is that the current atmospheric pollution caused by... Uh, Accumulation of carbon over the generations is mostly the fault of other, other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And um, I do agree with you on the fact that, like, kind of, it shouldn't be solely put on the hands of China to kind of like let's fix this kind mm -hmm. of greenhouse gas emission. But I think um, I don't know how relevant this is, but I, whenever I think the last couple years I've been back to China, Mm -hmm. it's actually been a lot better than what people kind of think in the way that um cities I've I usually go to Guangzhou and I've been to Beijing and Shanghai a couple mm-hmm. of times and um it seems that like domestically they are more proactive in like making their scenery more green having mm-hmm. programs in universities this is just from yeah. ta- talking to my relatives they're like yeah. there are new programs that mm-hmm. like um talk about um, kind of planting mm-hmm. like trees and kind of yeah. like more pro-green kind of courses in universities. And I think that's like a really good change that we're seeing. And just in the scenery from what it was 10 years ago, like there's there are a lot more trees. There, there is a lot more, seems to be a lot more concern within China about kind of being more environmental.
3: You're right. Um, I've observed this too uh, really rapid change in general awareness mm-hmm. of environmental issues and more programs, more, uh, lively programs in uh, universities and uh, community action programs uh, and this is something I'm very interested in um, teaching on Green China a course called Green China <laughs> I'll be teaching again in, in in January so it's exactly that trend that, I, that I'm interested in watching but I think it's limited to the more affluent parts of the country. Mm. The the tree planting, for instance, is is um, funded locally, so it's the more wealthy cities t- that can plant it. Though China as a whole does have um, a very good record in reforestation and afforestation, like replanting and also extending uh, the size of, of forests. So it's a world leader in this. Uh, China's mm. contributing something to the net gain of forest cover in, in the world, though they're sparse forests, they're not dense, but okay? yeah. Rose- Forests, uh, yeah, and the uh, um, uh, this the the high level national commitment is matched by these municipal government programs, so that's a, a cause for optimism. Right? I I'm pitting some hope on, on these trends, but China at the same time is is, uh, is on the whole becoming more polluted, despite these more wealthy uh, parts of the country, the the eastern. Um, coastal areas where where wealth has accumulated can can afford tree planting, where vast vast areas of old growth forest are being cut down every day at the same time. And the the most polluted cities in the world tend to be in China. they smaller smaller cities that we don't even hear about, but there are um, millions of people living in them who can hardly see in front of their faces because there's coal dust in here. So in some in some cities, there's no more. Um, uh, coal burning—it's been outlawed, but in other parts of the country, it's still very, very important. And there are coal mining districts where um, <clears throat> the, the coal is the you know, most uh, uh, accessible uh, um, fuel for heat and uh, cooking <laughs> and uh, power generation.
2: What do you think it'll it'll take? Will it be uh, that like drastic deterioration in the aesthetic? Landscape, or will it be health problems, increasing cancer rates? Mm. What, what do you think it'll
1: take? Oh,
3: interesting question. Well, though this is not entirely consistent with my other um, answers, I think popular pressure is going to count in this area because um, popular protests so so far have have not been. Uh, Directed in any focused way against the central government, they've remained local. And the largest protests in 2010, the year that we have, the most recent year that we have this information for, there were 180,000 so-called mass incidents all across China. So, several in one day, and this is means a crowd of hundreds or thousands of people, as many as 10,000 people, gathering uh, because they're angry about something that's happening in their locality. So. news about increased cancer rates and more people dying, and then a, a factory refusing to stop spewing stuff out into the area, or plans to build a, um, a, a plant producing dangerous chemicals, and the waste will be pumped into the, the, the river there. So people will protest about these things. And with the continued degradation, it looks like it's not going to stop anytime soon, uh, the uh, degradation of the environment is a you know, serious and it's a continuing tr- continuing trend, the number of these incidents will increase and extend to more, and more affluent areas where where connections with the party state are closer. So it'll come closer and closer to the top leaders' backyards. At the same time, it'll make more and more sense for the. Um, party state economy, <laughs> the the party state-owned economy, to be going in the direction of green technology or cleaning up. Uh, uh, so they'll make money on um, cleaning up after uh, uh, areas have been devastated. Mm-hmm. Of course, they'll make money, and it will probably not replace what was lost. But they will start <laughs> moving in the other direction at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, maybe during the next decade, but it Mm -hmm. could take longer.
0: Do you feel like in some ways for this case, popular pressure is a little bit more applicable because um, citizens themselves can be a little more proactive in contributing to this kind of green movement, whereas for other things that they protest about, like human rights and something, it's not something that they can be proactive about in the way that they can go green, almost. And they don't have to... Per se, rely on the government to do almost their part in kind of growing green,
3: going green. Yeah, I see what you mean. That it's it's um <clears throat> not um, a protest against the current political system to to be demonstrating on behalf of uh, a local environmental protection movement or as part of a, a local movement. However. You know, the, they're not so different. Both seem threatening to the to the established authorities. I don't think they distinguish okay. between the two because it, it's you know, in the long term benefit of China too to um, uh, to pursue political reform. But they're not <laughs> uh, willing to entertain um, uh, the views of. Big crowds of people pushing <laughs> to do that. Uh, but of course, the, the, the official statements are China is China is um, pursuing political reform. The party is democratizing from within, and you know, um, uh, democratic routines are going to spread uh, further in society than they already have. They are coming up from the bottom.
0: How much do you believe that's true? I I
3: do believe they're committed to it, but they don't say how soon. <laughs> I think they are uh, committed to it as, um, at the same time as committed to staying in power. So the two mm-hmm. things have to work together. <laughs>
2: and everything's kind of under wraps, right? Mm-hmm. Just really quickly, do you think that um, kind of the environmental cause, perhaps because it is more accessible because people can participate in it,
4: mm-hmm.
2: will, that, that human rights and minority issues will take a back seat, or, or dem- democracy will take a back seat to that cause because it's a little less contentious? Well, they, they usually connect. Yeah.
3: Because uh, individuals or particular villages suffered the damaging effects of um, environmental destruction more than others. Mm-hmm. and people who are protesting might be arrested and and, um, detained, so there's the human rights or civil rights issue. Yeah, they're going to be happening together. It's going to be (laughs) complicated and messy (laughs) and lively. (laughs) Very interesting to watch.
0: My last question for you is that um, I was reading an article and it was talking about how um, a lot of the older military leaders are also going to be stepping down. Mm -hmm. And the fear of that is that um, the new leaders haven't been as jaded with kind of the revolution during the 60s and all of that. And um, what's going to happen is that these new leaders, because they're less jaded, they will be more proactive in instigating kind of um, um, violence or war or whatever it might be. Do you see
3: that happening? No, I think they understand that it would be very risky. Hu Jintao was Deng Xiaoping's chosen um, heir, <laughs> not immediate heir. He favored uh, Jiang Zemin's appointment and Hu Jintao um, was uh, his, his his protege as well. And so now Hu Jintao will still have influence. It, it, it's, there's not much of a break in their understanding of of um, how China should, you know, how you know, they should uh, make stability and continued economic growth a priority. Mm. So there isn't enough to be gained by um, risking conflict uh, overseas. Though the armies, it's some somewhat different story. If the if the military um, hierarchy gains more autonomy, but I don't see them doing that. But in, in public, they like to make um, confrontational statements sometimes because their position in their hierarchy and their, their standing among their, in their group of connections mm-hmm. depends on being hard-line, being nationalistic. I know. The, the two go together. In, you know, hardline in protecting China's sovereignty and China's right to rise. China's right to rise peacefully, they will say, but others might be threatening China's right to rise peacefully. So China has to be defensive. And so uh, and they're 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 um, speaking to a domestic audience mm-hmm. mostly, to their to their peers in the party state and, and military hi- hierarchy, but also for the public to see how patriotic and strong mm-hmm. they are.
2: What do you think about um, the conflict between Japan and China and some of these mm. islands? Do you think that a military solution is there's potential for that?
3: Uh, no, I don't think that will happen. Uh, there are there are some things to be worked out, and China and Japan have close relations. They're not necessarily really good relations, but they're pretty good because they understand one another. So some of the the statements made on both sides are posturing for publics. I, I think there's a good chance of them working this out, and it will no longer be in the, in the news, the East China Sea mm-hmm. um, controversy or right. uh, contention. Right. For that. On the South, the South China Sea is, is, uh, issues are more difficult because there China really is pushing some weaker countries um, and making claims that are difficult to defend and not mm-hmm. even clearly Stating the basis of their claims. So um, that's for public consumption too, but it's complicated because there are several different agencies involved. There are always several different agencies involved in anything that China does overseas or it, it's in um, international reach. In, in this case, it, it, the um, issue has been exacerbated by some interagency jostling for public recognition. The, the uh, claims for h- a huge expanse of the South China
2: Sea. I guess our my final question is: We read an article published in October that it was possible that a woman was going to ascend mm-hmm. to the. I think
0: it's New Oh it? Mm-hmm. is it? Yeah, okay.
2: Was going to was going to ascend to the the Politburo Standing Committee. Um, it, I don't think that's going to happen now. From everything I've read mm-hmm. recently do you have any thoughts yeah.
3: on that? I haven't heard s- her name mentioned for a long time so it doesn't seem very likely now yeah. but it still could happen we could be surprised <laughs> that would you know ask me couple tomorrow couple what of, I think you know, if if yeah. she does get in
2: <laughs> they were from a little while ago yeah. so but uh-huh. you know, i guess sense. what would be the public response to that what would be the response of some of the other members of the committee these older gentlemen yeah. you know do you think that that a woman may happen in the theater? future?
3: Oh, there are some strong women. These yeah. older gentlemen would accept a woman, okay. uh, but she would have to be someone with really, really good connections. Right. And there aren't any women in the picture now who can um, rank up there with with the ones who are probably going to be the seven, maybe nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so China looks backward for not having more women in the government. He does. The. Um, the uh, problem of um, male um, entitlement, sense of entitlement in, in China is at all, all levels of society. Uh, yeah, it's probably going to change eventually, but again, I don't
1: know how long it will take. Thank you for listening to Write a Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. The proceeding was an interview with Queen's professor Emily Hill about China specifically what the new change of Chinese leadership would mean for the future of economic, defense, environmental, and other policies. Before concluding today's show, the Queen's International Affairs Association would like to share a few announcements. The second issue of the Queen's International Observer, a student-run publication on campus exploring international affairs, will be available on newsstands across campus and online in the coming weeks. You can read the first issue at www.queensobserver.org. Also consider becoming a member of the
2: Queen's Model UN Delegation. Ranked in the top 50 Model UN Delegations in North America, the Queen's team travels to six conferences throughout the year. Registration for West Point Security Conference, Pennsylvania United Nations Conference, and Princeton Interactive Crisis Simulation are open now. Visit www.qiaa.org slash delegation to register and attend weekly Model UN meetings on Thursdays at 5.30 in MacCory, Room E229. No experience is necessary. Tune in to the next Right of Reply on Wednesday, December 5th, where we'll be talking about Canadian and American relations.
5: Greetings from CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, Canada's longest-running campus-based broadcaster.
4: The story of CFRC goes back to early radio experiments by Queen's University's first professor of general engineering, James Lester Willis Gill. Gill mounted the first public exhibition of wireless telegraphy at a Queen's Convocation lecture on April 28, 1902, just four months after Marconi's first successful transatlantic transmission from Newfoundland Signal Hill.
5: An informal wireless club was formed at Queen's by a group of Gillis students who would gather to experiment with the latest wireless technologies. Through the assistance of Professor Douglas Jemen, the wireless club obtained an experimental license in the spring of 1922 under the call letters 9BT.
6: 9BT's transmission equipment was housed in the basement of the university's electrical engineering building. The transmitter had an output of about 250 watts with a range of almost 160 kilometers. While there were some preliminary unscheduled broadcasts by 9BT, the first recorded successful test took place on October 7, 1922 at 8.30 p.m., featuring a summary of an exhibition football game at Queen's.
5: A donation in early 1923 made possible the acquisition of better, more reliable broadcast equipment and a private commercial license was obtained under the call letters CFRC in the spring of 1923. CFRC's first scheduled public broadcast aired on October 27, 1923, featuring Professor Richard Joliffe calling a football game between Queens and McGill. At that time, Queens' tricolor team had won the Grey Cup for three years in a row, and it thus became a common myth that the station's call letters stood for Canada's famous rugby champions.
4: CFRC was Kingston's only radio station and soon began airing programs from the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, being a full affiliate of the CBC in 1936 under a commercial partnership with the Kingston Whig-Standard newspaper. In 1938, CFRC aired what was possibly the station's most notable broadcast, a convocation speech at Queen's given by U.S. President Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt's, which was relayed by CFRC to all North American radio networks. To the pleasure of being once more on Canadian soil, where I have passed so many happy hours of my life, there is added today a very warm sense of gratitude for being admitted to the fellowship of this ancient and famous university.
6: CFRC remained a CBC affiliate in partnership with the Whig Standard for six years. However, because CFRC had a weak signal and commercial limitations placed on it by the university, such as a ban on advertising for patent medicines.
0: Bromacelts is mighty refreshing any time, and every athlete knows it's a faster way to get relief when a headache teams up with a cold.
6: The Whig Standard eventually sought their own station and in 1942 launched CKWS-AM, acquiring CFRC's CBC affiliation as well as its commercial license.
4: In exchange for CKWS carrying some programming from university broadcasters, CFRC agreed not to compete commercially with CKWS for 10 years and to only engage in broadcasts that filled the university's educational mandate. CFRC reverted to an experimental outlet for Queens Electrical Engineering Department until 1945, when Dr. William Angus launched the Summer Radio Institute, a joint venture with the CBC intended for training professional broadcasters. That fall, a branch of the Queens Drama Guild, called the Radio Workshop, began weekly broadcasts of radio theatre on CFRC. Jane, darling. Oh, I'm I'm terribly sorry, Jolly. I didn't want to do that, but I guess it's just me, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know, darling. Don't worry. It's going to be all right someday.
4: Soon, the electrical engineering students joined in to put the station on the air two and then three nights per week during the school year.
5: In 1953, CFRC sought an FM broadcast license to broadcast at 1,000 watts at 91.9 MHz. An application was filed and approved. CFRC-FM began broadcasting in 1954, simulcasting the programming of CFRC-AM. In 1957,
6: concerned that CFRC was not producing programming worthy of the university, An ad hoc committee of Queen's faculty and staff advised the principal to appoint Margaret Angus as director of radio at Queen's. Angus had extensive experience at the CBC and with the Queen's Drama Guild. Under her supervision, students producing radio for CFRC formed a student radio club. By 1958, the club's membership grew from less than 40 student broadcasters to more than 100, and CFRC's hours on the air increased from 33 to 36 and a half each week. Angus also oversaw the station's move in 1959 from the engineering building to its current facilities in Carruthers Hall. In
5: 1968, Andrew Marshall replaced Angus to take on the role of station manager at CFRC. Under Marshall's direction, CFRC's hours on the air increased to 37.5 hours per week, and membership of the Student Radio Club grew to more than 150. Marshall also began programming CFRC's AM and FM signals separately. As of 1970 CFRC AM delivered student-operated programming while CFRC FM aired content geared toward the fine arts produced by student and faculty broadcasters. The division of the two frequencies resulted in an additional 25 hours of original programming each week. In
4: 1974 Stephen Cutway replaced Marshall as CFRC's station manager. Cutway, with the help of a donation from alumna Kathleen Ryan, launched CFRC's Go Stereo campaign in 1977. The campaign lasted 13 years and involved student and community fundraising, major equipment purchases, as well as government applications and numerous logistical and bureaucratic hurdles. But finally, on February 3, 1990, CFRC let its AM signal go dark and began broadcasting in stereo at 101.9 FM in the Greater Kingston area. By 2001, the station was broadcasting 24-7, and in 2004, CFRC launched its online audio stream through its website at cfrc.ca, entering a new era of broadcasting history.
6: Today, CFRC operates as a campus community radio station serving Queens and Kingston communities with spoken word and music programming not heard in other local media. The station provides free broadcast training and experience to members, and almost all of its programming is produced by nearly 200 local volunteers. 2012 marks CFRC's 90th year of making waves in Kingston. For more information, visit us online at cfrc.ca.
2: Hotel Dew Hospital is seeking volunteers for just two to three hours a week. You can make a difference in your life and the lives of others in our community. For inquiries and more information, contact Jennifer at 613-544-3400 extension number 2311 or visit their website at
4: www.hoteldue.com.